Happy Monday. Welcome to Couch Potato Diary. My name is Peter Klein. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Before we get into anything else, I just want to say thank you all so, 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 so much for the support on uh, twitch.tv slash primetimepk over the weekend. Uh, my laptop crapped out after 20 hours, so the 24-hour marathon uh, is four hours short, so I, I owe you guys four hours of video game playing. I, I will try to find a way to make that up to you, I promise. Um, but we did reach the goal for November of $500 raised, so thank you guys so much. There was a raid at about 2.30 in the morning that helped push us over the top, uh, so thank you to those guys for doing that, and thank you to all of you for tuning in. A lot more Twitch content to come at twitch.tv slash primetimepk. You can find me on social media. I am at primetimecline on Twitter and Instagram. You can email the show, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. What a weekend. A lot of a lot of football to cover, a lot of just everything to cover. We will start, though, with our CFL recap. What a game in the West Final, as the Calgary Stampeders fall to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in overtime. And it was frustrating the amount of debates of, oh, is this a good football game or is this just an entertaining football game? And I understand where the CFL is at. It's different than where the NFL is at, but it's just, it's so frustrating that every game needs to be just either a ringing endorsement of what Canadian football can be or an indictment of how the CFL is failing and going to, to spin off the planet into obscurity. It can just be an entertaining football game. Not every game needs to have 20,000 think pieces on it about whether it was good for the game, bad for the game, going to help grow the sport, going to kill the sport once and for all. Just watch. Enjoy. It's just enjoy it. That's all I, I have to say about that. Or don't. If you don't enjoy it, don't enjoy it. Like, that's fine. I don't care if you think it's good for the game or bad for the game. Or if you think, is this good football or is this just entertaining? Who gives a shit? I was entertained. And there is football to analyze from it. So, let's do the analyzing, shall we? Let's start with the victors. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders off to the West Final. A rematch with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who beat Saskatchewan in Regina to win the West Final back in 2019. The Riders will be hoping for some revenge. And if they are going to do that, they need second half Cody Fajardo instead of whatever that was in the first half. Some big plays for Fajardo in the second half. But there's still... It still isn't all all there for Cody Fajardo. There's still a couple of reads that get missed for interceptions. There's still players that drop off that, oh, where was that guy? And well, now he has the football and he's not on our team. So that seems like a problem. When he was at his best, it was all in rhythm, right? Like it was just at the top of his drop, boom, ball gets out. It's a first down to Duke Williams. Just dut, 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 quick pass out, quick pass out. That is where Cody Fajardo is at his best. And this team, it felt like all season was trying to establish, no, we can go deep guys too. Look, like we can, this isn't just a dink and dunk offense. Cody Fajardo isn't just a game manager. He's someone who can throw the, pop the top off defense as they like to say. He can, he, I don't know why that Southern accent came out there, but he, he can be someone who can go over the top. And it's like, he, he can't really, like he literally can throw a football far, but that that is not his strategy. That is not his specialty. And and they finally, in the fourth quarter, it's like, well, we're losing now. We may as well do what we're good at. And it worked. Look at that. It worked. That needs to be what this team does next week against Winnipeg if they want to have any success. That is the best pass rush in the Canadian Football League. If Fajardo's going to be holding the ball for five, six, seven seconds and then relying on his scrambling ability to create plays, he is going to get killed by Winnipeg. This needs to be a quick, efficient offense working the ball up the field. We would love to be the gunslinging team, but sometimes you just got to do 
what works for you. The thing that Fajardo did, I thought the best in the second half of that game was use his legs and not just extending plays, but finally just like, no, I have 10 yards. We need 10 yards. I'm going to go get 10 yards. And I, I think that there was a bit of caution in Saskatchewan this year to just let him do it because he was taking a lot of unnecessary hits. But now, not, not that you all of a sudden brain cells don't matter in the playoffs, baby. Um, but th this is, um, th you could definitely see the, tr not, not the training wheels taken off, but you could definitely see a bit more aggression and a bit more of, okay, look, we just need you to get these now. So whatever you have to do to help us win this game is what we are going to do. And those are the plays that drive me up the freaking wall when this team on third and two from the 17, oh, let's kick a field goal. Third and three from the 11. Yeah, we gotta kick a field goal. You have a very good running back in William Powell. You have an offensive line that played very well against the Calgary Stampeders. They get a bit of help for the second half, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and you also have a quarterback who can run and can throw pretty well on the run. Those are all, you also have a really solid receiver who is difficult to cover in Duke Williams. All of those things should lead to success in A, the red zone, where this team is one of the worst in the league, and B, in short yardage situations in third and three. I think this team needs to be about a thousand times more aggressive when they have those types of plays, because settling for field goals almost cost them this game, probably should have cost them this game. I, I don't think Calgary was a, a far superior team or anything like that, but the, the Riders got some breaks with um, with Rene Paradis missing all of those field goals. So settling for field goals almost cost Saskatchewan in this game, and it will cost them against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers if they continue to just lay up with three points in an area where you need to be getting seven. The, the margin for error is basically out now. This is a team that needs to do it. And 46.3% in the red zone this season is just simply not good enough. They, I, I think that in those short yardage situations, you really need, when you have such a wide field too, like I just, you should be able to find a way to get someone open for three yards on, on third and three. And I think that someone needs to be Duke Williams. Once he entered the game plan, this offense really started to, to flow. And maybe, uh, look, we don't have the all, I guess it would be 24 in, um, in Canada. We don't have that. Uh, available to the general public, as at least as much as I know. So you can't go back and watch the, the tape to see if Duke Williams was just super covered until the second half. But just five targets seems like too little. And they were really trying to force the ball, excuse me, to Shaq Evans in the early part of the ball game. And it, Calgary took advantage of that. Like the one interception, Fajardo was staring him down the whole time. And Evans kind of gets knocked off of his route a little bit as he tries to run around a defender and then get back. And Fajardo's still like, nope, we're going to try to get him the ball. We're going to try to get him the ball. It's like a running back where it's like coach said there's going to be a hole here, so I'm going to run here. And if there's not a hole here, well, I guess, I mean, coach said there's going to be a hole there. It felt like that with Fajardo where it's, no, we're going to try to get Shaq involved early, so I'm going to get Shaq involved early. And instead, you got Moxie involved early. <laughs> and... I, I think Duke Williams needs to be the number one target for this Rough Rider team going forward. I think he was very effective in that quick passing game, and I think that that needs to be, again, the strategy next week against Winnipeg. But we have enough time to break down that game next weekend between the Riders and the Blue Bombers. Let's focus now on the Calgary Stampeders. And it was weird because the, the staples of this last generation of Calgary Stampeder football were the ones who kind of let them down. I thought Bo looked terrible on Sunday afternoon in Regina. There was a couple of, like, obviously the, the team put up 30 points. He he had some moments, but 
some of those throws, like you just, you don't see those from Bo unless you watched the CFL this year. But like the, those are just mistakes that he has never made before. And I don't know if they're something hurt, but it's like the, the, the one interception or the one miss where Carey, like he just throws it eight yards over his head. That that can be a miscommunication one. But like the one on Ambles, that's not a lack of confidence in your receiver. That is not a miscommunication or a broken off route or whatever. That is a bad throw that a team took advantage of. You you don't usually see those from Bo. I'm not gonna like there, there's talk, oh well, maybe you go with a different quarterback now. I think these last couple of years have been so weird. I think you give Bo the benefit of the doubt. And also look around the CFL, like who are you getting? It's great that Meyer had a couple of good games. Are you rolling out with him for presumably 18 games next season? I'm not. I I think you got to give at, Bo at least a chance in the first half of next year. I, I think he has certainly earned that. Uh, and an awful game for Rene Paradis. Just an, an absolutely dreadful game. And there's a lot going on in his mind going into that game, as um, all reports indicate he was one of the unvaccinated ones for the Stampeders, so it was going to be his last game anyway. Um, th- there had to be a lot going on mentally there, but like that, the the one, anytime you miss from 45 plus, you can kind of, okay, yeah, that's that's fine. Um, the 35 yarder where it was good. It was good. It was good. And then just took a hard left turn. You don't see those misses from paradise. And then the, the miss in overtime just sealed the game away for Saskatchewan. But that was, that was dreadful from Renee paradise. And he has never been that before for the Stampeders. And I, I, again, like you can find kickers wherever. And he said in the, the media availability today that he has some things to think about in terms of whether he wants to return or not. Other moments from this game, the the big, I don't want to say turning point, this ends up being a three-point game in overtime, but one of the big moments is Lemon's punch at the end of the half. Heat of the moment, if you get spit on, it's really difficult to say, just keep your composure. But you can't, like, you, you just can't lose it in that moment. That ends up really costing this team. Fajardo with a couple of big runs in the second half. Who knows if he gets those, if both Rose and Lemon are in there uh, pressuring Fajardo. Like who, the, the entire outlook of this game could be much different if Lemon is in there causing havoc in the, the Saskatchewan backfield. So that that is, it's just a mistake you can't make. And heat, in the mo- heat of the moment, I would love to tell you that, well, I would be mature enough that if someone spat on me, I would just walk away. It's tough to say that as a human being. Like, that—that that is a gross thing to have happen to you. But for, for him to end up costing his team, it really looks bad. If he can prove that Williams spit on him, then there's a big issue here. Because we just talked about how important Duke Williams is to the Saskatchewan um, attack and to the Saskatchewan... Um, game plan going into next week against Winnipeg. If he's not there, that's a real big problem for Saskatchewan. A Saskatchewan team I don't give a whole lot of hope to in this matchup anyway, but uh, admittedly I didn't against uh, Winnipeg. So there you go for that. But no, if, if he is if he is not in there, then that really changes things for Saskatchewan. On the bright side for Calgary, Kadeem Carey was an absolute monster. I don't know if he wants to try to give the NFL one more try or one of the eight spring football leagues that are going to pop up again in 2023, but I thought Kadeem Carey was an absolute monster for Calgary, and it got to the point where every time they didn't run the ball with him as a Saskatchewan fan, you felt a little bit better about it. The 
one real big turning point early in the game could have been the illegal block that cost Saskatchewan. It was basically a 105-yard penalty uh, because you take a touchdown off the board and you put Saskatchewan back of their own five, and then it's boom, interception, boom, touchdown, Calgary's up 7 nothing. And by the way, credit Saskatchewan for not getting too down on that. Like, there was a lot of moments where both teams showed good mental toughness in this game, but... It's a horrible call. It, it is an absolutely atrocious call. And you don't want to make everything reviewable. I'm sure if you could review that, Saskatchewan would have. And maybe this game looks a whole lot differently than it does. The one thing that I think gets lost in this whole thing is just don't block the kicker. Like, that, that was not an integral block on the play. That was not a block that really sprung things. That was just a guy looking to be a shit doing the, I'm not touching you from behind. I'm not touching you from behind. And then, like, he, he was just, he was kind of being a dick and he didn't need to do that. Like, just, just don't hit the kicker and there's not gonna be a problem. You, you did, you 1000% did not need to do that. That was not the key block that sprung the play. That was just you kind of being an asshole. So don't. In the East semifinal, I said going in, this needed to be a William Stanback game. He goes 12 for 29. His longest run in the game was Eight. You know who else knew that this needed to be a William Stanback game? The Hamilton Tiger Cats front seven. And holy smokes, did that front seven come to play. I get Trevor Harris, like the passing numbers look great. 364 yards, one touchdown, 28 for 44. His longest goes for 46 yards to uh, Eugene Lewis, who had a good game with 127 yards. But I mean, Ja'Garrett Davis is getting a lot of the love. I thought that whole front for um for Hamilton really came to play and just completely blew up the Alouette's game plan. And Trevor Harris, I thought late, like, look, they're down 10 with uh, about five minutes to go. In the CFL, that's tons of time to be able to, to try to make a comeback. I thought he had an opportunity to get that team back into that game. And it, it's one of those, like, he is, I think he is an elite level game manager. Um, the problem is they needed him to be an elite level comeback artist and he just, he couldn't for them. And that, that is the issue that that's one. If Vernon Adams is in that game, I think it's completely different. Now the game plan for Hamilton's also completely different, but Trevor Harris. And then again, two minutes left, you're down. I think it was 13 or whatever it was like, you're probably not coming back, but he's just holding the ball so long. And in pro football, wide open very rarely happens. Sometimes, especially if like you're down 13, you just need to take some shots. And if you have an interception, oh well, he's just not wired to do that. So a tough loss for, for Montreal. Their season comes to an end in Hamilton. And now the Ticats are hoping they're playing again in Hamilton in a couple of weeks for the Grey Cup. Week 12 in the NFL, just about in the books. One game left. It is Seattle taking on Washington. That game doesn't matter for us. We got a winning week, baby. Seven and five. Um, let's run through some of the stuff that we saw. First off, the Thursday games. We taped the Friday show before the Thursday games were done. I said, oh, and by the time uh, you hear this, you know the Raiders will have got blown out by the Dallas Cowboys. Nope. Welcome back to relevancy, Las Vegas Raiders. I might have called them Oakland Raiders there. Who cares? You know who I'm talking about. As the, the Raiders pick up uh, a good week for my teams in overtime, they pick up a win over the Dallas Cowboys. And the thing that I think makes you feel the best about this, um, about this Raiders win is how aggressive they were on offense, pushing the ball down the field. You can see now there is a bit of a comfort level with Deshaun Jackson having him implemented into the offense now. And now you have 10 days before you get ready for uh, the, the Raiders' next game to, to get him just a little bit more locked in with this football team. And you, you see, like, he... 
not that he is a Henry Ruggs replacement per se, like not that he does everything the same way exactly that Henry Ruggs does, but he at least gives you that threat down the field. And the, the Raiders, even losing Waller, still were able to have a lot of success throwing the football. And that that was their key this year. They had the, the stat popped up on the thing that they had the most uh, plays of 20 plus yards in the NFL this season. That has never been their MO and it wasn't over the last three weeks, but then they get it back with uh, Deshaun Jackson back in the lineup. So that really gives this Raiders team a boost. The Dallas Cowboys, I think they'll be fine. Um, like this was, they, they were missing a couple of weapons on offense. So the, the Raiders, who essentially only have one corner, could put that one corner on the best receiver and the only real receiver that the Cowboys have. And Wilson burned the the Raiders a couple of times, but still, I, there just there wasn't the weapons there for Dak Prescott. And one thing, man, Zeke looks cooked right now. And apparently he's dealing with an injury. If you're Dallas, I think you sit him for a few games. Uh, honestly, and this isn't just me as someone who owns Tony Pollard in fantasy football, I think you put him on the IR for three weeks. Just let him rest and get him ready for the postseason. Tony Pollard, like when the, the Cowboys were driving late in that game, I was surprised that it was Zeke out there, not Pollard. Zeke um, just doesn't have the same explosion or the same burst right now. Pollard has all of those things. Pollard, I thought, was their best chance at a big play in that game. And the fact that he didn't have the ball a whole lot was, I thought, surprising. And again, as a Raider fan, made me feel pretty good. Um, I say the Cowboys will be fine. The Saints won't be. I, I think it's too many injuries now for the Saints. And Trevor Simeon, like, he's just not good at all. And... The Taysom Hill, I get they're, they're trying to ease him back or whatever, but I just, it's surprising to me how little of an option they had behind Jameis Winston, where it was just, oh yeah, it'll be Jameis or it'll be whatever. Like that, that, that surprises me that there was that much confidence in Jameis going forward. But I, I think that the Saints are definitely going to, to fall off now. And for the Bills, it's another meh team that they beat. Like they, they beat the shit out of them. But gearing up for a Monday nighter against the New England Patriots, this is the test for the Buffalo Bills. This is your chance to prove to everyone, just kind of shut everyone up about how the Patriots are back as the top team in this division. This is your chance to shut everyone up. Like I said, uh, for the Sunday slate, we go 7-5. and five. Atlanta covers uh, as they win straight up against Jacksonville. We had them on the money line. We get the win there, so you feel pretty good about that. Uh, but as far as like the actual football goes, Jacksonville is done. And Atlanta, I mean, look, they're hanging around in a playoff spot right now. As we take a look at the, well, we'll take a look at the standings when everything is done. Miami covers plus two. It was right back down to earth for Cam Newton as he looked rough. And for Miami, they are really starting to get this offense in a bit of a rhythm now. That's a pretty good Carolina defense. Say what you want about Cam Newton. That's a pretty good Carolina defense that Miami played, and they were able to, to put up some points against them. They have really figured out what Tua does well, and I think are now playing to his strengths. The big news from this game comes earlier today. News kept breaking, so that's why I'm a little bit later getting to this podcast, as Christian McCaffrey is done for the season now, as he's been placed on IR, the thought was it was just going to be an ankle sprain. Turns out that is incorrect. Uh, so now Christian McCaffrey is done. Chupa Hubbard is going to get an extended look. He was okay um, as the uh, as the feature back for um, for the Panthers in that spot when McCaffrey went down earlier in the season. He is now going to have to very much step it up if Carolina wants to hang around in the playoff race. The Jets end up beating the Houston Texans. That's a loss for us, and that's a game we're not going to go too far into. Philadelphia, this is 
this is the danger of the the week to week uh, in the National Football League. And I'll admit, I bought in on Jalen Hurts. I had Philadelphia minus three and a half. Part of that is I don't think the Giants are very good. But Jalen Hurts right back down to earth for the the Philadelphia Eagles. And it's just one game and everyone's all of a sudden, oh man, maybe they don't have it figured out at quarterback. Like he had to be perfect the rest of the way. We knew there was going to be some growing pains with Jalen Hurts. It's just, will Philadelphia want to live with those? And will he ever fully grow out of them is the question. I said Cincinnati minus four was an insult and that proved to be right. Cincinnati almost would have covered minus 40. They beat the tar out of the Steelers. And again, I was looking at it uh, this week, Baltimore, just three and a half point favorites against the Pittsburgh Steelers. These Steelers are cooked. Roethlisberger is done. There is just nothing that this offense can really do to threaten you. Tampa Bay comes from behind to beat the Indianapolis Colts. Carson Wentz looks pretty for real. And this Indianapolis Colts team hangs with one of the best teams in the league. I think this is positive in defeat for the Indianapolis Colts. We figure New England probably going to cover against the beat-up Tennessee Titans team, and they do. And it, it continues to... The, the wheels continue to fall off in Tennessee. Not... For a lack of trying, it's just injuries continue to slow this team down. The LA Chargers continue to be the most damn infuriating team on the face of the planet as they fall to the Denver Broncos. We get the cover on uh, minus 40 or on the, the 48 over under, but we don't get the straight up win for the Chargers as this offense just couldn't do anything. Like they, there, there are so many great weapons on this team, but it, it kind of feels like the last, let Russ cook era of the Seattle Seahawks. They need to let Herbert cook a little bit more, and they, they just aren't doing that. It's incredibly frustrating to watch, and I can't imagine being a Chargers fan. This, was, th this should have been the year, and they just can't seem to get out of their own way. The Green Bay Packers with a win of the weekend. They beat the LA Rams straight up, and now you're starting to have doubts about a Rams team that looked like potential Super Bowl favorites um, at points this season. Matt Stafford, it's it's continued struggles for Matt Stafford, and now Sean McVay is going to have to coach the hell out of this football team if they are going to make any kind of noise in the NFC's playoffs. Like They, they are probably not winning their division, which means they're going to have to win a bunch on the road in the postseason against some real good teams, whereas Green Bay... They are putting the pressure on Arizona because it looks like the NFC might just have to run through Lambeau. San Francisco with a big win over Minnesota. What did I tell you about never trusting the Vikings? I trusted them. I got burned. San Francisco hanging around. They're not going to win the division like we thought they would. I don't know if we're going to get that over 10 and a half that we thought they would at the beginning of the season, but we still might get a playoff team out of the San Francisco 49ers. I do believe their schedule is pretty lax the rest of the way. And Cleveland fails to cover plus three and a half against Baltimore. Everyone kind of panicking about Lamar Jackson. Look, you can't throw four interceptions if you want to win a championship it's like this guy missed the game because he was sick a week ago he has had immune issues out the wazoo all season long i just had a cold that knocked me on my ass for a week and i just talk into a microphone he has to run out there like people flying around him trying to tackle him and shit like just Let's let him get back. I'm not I'm not panicking about the Baltimore Ravens as they look pretty good in a big division win. Quickly in college football, Lincoln Riley is off to USC. This makes a, quite a bit of sense. I thought he was going to look um, to the professional ranks as he leaves Oklahoma, but with Oklahoma apparently making their way to the SEC, he gets out of the recruiting um, just like absolute... Um, God, why am I blanking on the word? Um, but the, 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 he's getting out of the recruiting terror in the SEC and he basically now has the West to himself. Like Lincoln Riley is not going to lose recruits to UCLA as he goes to, to USC to the Trojans. 
this is the best hire USC could have possibly thought of. And we talked before about how USC, like you're not that, you guys aren't that job anymore. Well, to your credit, you got that coach. And now he has the opportunity to turn it into that job. I'll be interested to see what Oklahoma does now. Um, apparently, there's talk of Kingsbury going there. That would be absolutely asinine for him to do. Like, hey, you could have the most exciting player in the professional ranks with an offense that's built to the way you coach things and a defense that is helping things out greatly. Or, again, go to Oklahoma and try to recruit against Nick Saban and try to recruit in the SEC. Have fun. Yeah, try to get like all these top level SEC caliber players to go to Oklahoma. Have fun with that. The, my one thing, I hate that coaches can do this, man. Like if it's an offensive coordinator taking a head coaching job somewhere else, fine. Defensive coordinator, whatever. But like for a coach to go from one head coaching job in college to another head coaching job in college really, really bothers me because you're asking these kids to make these commitments and we get all up in arms about transfers. Although that admittedly that has calmed down, but you make these kids make a commitment to your school and then you can't make a commitment to them. It's just, it's really, really frustrating. The music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. You can find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent, with X is where the A's would be. And you can find their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. All right, Major League Baseball. Uh, we thought that it was going to be a quiet offseason until they got the CBA figured out. Turns out that's not happening. Holy smokes, everything is happening right now in baseball. Like uh, the, key, the, the key ones for the free agents for the Blue Jays are gone. Simeon's already gone. Robbie Ray's already gone. I, I thought we'd have more time. To, to wonder if that was going to be the case. And apparently uh, we are not. Let, let's focus on the Blue Jays first. Robbie Ray signs a five-year, $115 million deal with the Seattle Mariners after Kevin Gosman signed a five-year, $110 million deal with the Toronto Blue Jays. I The Blue Jays have been looking at acquiring Gosman for forever. And finally, he is brought in to Toronto. He is someone who is familiar with this division. He has had some success in this division and some very much not success in this division. He, he has had some troubles at times in the American League East, but it looks like he has figured it out. He is truly, I, I think, one of the top pitchers in baseball and has an oppor like has the opportunity to be one of those. And when you look at what the Blue Jays were able to get out of Robbie Ray, it feels like they have an opportunity to now get that out of Kevin Gosman. I, I think this is a good signing. You save a couple million bucks. I think it's a million dollars a season on the, the Robbie Ray contract and you get a draft pick out of it. So the Blue Jays, I think come away pretty good in this one, to, to be perfectly honest. Like it would have been great if Robbie Ray could have stuck around. That would have been a whole lot of fun. Um, but you still going into next season, if they don't bring in anyone else, you have Barrios, Ryu, Gosman, Manoa, and then... I would imagine they bring in another pitcher, but you also, you're hoping you get something out of Nate Pearson, right? So I, I think this is a good one for the Toronto Blue Jays. This has been, he, he came into the league as one of the top prospects in baseball. And I, I think he hasn't necessarily lived up to that all the time, but there is potential for this guy to be great. And I, I think the Blue Jays have the opportunity to get that out of him. The Blue Jays lose, like we mentioned, Robbie Ray to the Mariners, who 
look, they had a, a real run at it. They were still involved in the last couple of weeks of the regular season last year and just fell off. Good on them for trying to make a push and get this team back into the postseason. While uh, Marcus Semyon makes his way to the Rangers, which was a bit of a surprise. We knew he wanted to be out west. And we thought we, he wanted to play in California, though. And uh, Texas is not that. It's lovely in Texas. At least it can be. Um, but uh, yeah, th th this was a bit of a surprise, but they go big. Seven years, $175 million. Neither contract on these guys would have like absolutely killed you. And not neither contract would have made me feel like this was um, uh, a real letdown or anything like that for uh, for the Blue Jays, like I wouldn't have felt, oh man, overpay. But uh, neither of them are contracts where it's like, oh, the Jays could have done that. Why, why aren't you doing that? Like this, th these are large sums of money that are being handed around. For Simeon to the Rangers, it's funny. Like the, the this is kind of the way baseball does, re or some baseball teams at least do rebuilds. Where okay, we're gonna tear everything down. We're gonna trade a bunch of guys out. Let's go. And then you get tired of losing after a couple of years and say, fuck it, let's sign everyone. Our payroll's like $9 million because we only have kids on here. So let's go out and get some fools. That that seems to be the way the Rangers are going about this rebuild now. But Simeon in Texas, I, I think he has the potential to be pretty good, um, at least for the next couple of seasons. And we'll see what the Blue Jays do now. Like going into this year, the Blue Jays infield now, with, with now that we know Simeon isn't coming back, first, play, uh, first base is Vlad. You feel pretty comfortable about that. <laughs> uh, shortstop is is Bo Bichette. Again, you feel very comfortable about that. Second base, as of this exact second, would probably be Kevin Biggio and him as an everyday second baseman who can give you some spot duty in left field and right field uh, over at third base, over at first base as well. Like having him be kind of your Ben Zobrist is a great idea, but I think having him have a position he can focus on is also going to help him out um, for the next little bit. And then you're relying a lot on Santiago Espinal to make a comeback and, and be just the exact guy that he was for, um, for the Blue Jays last year. That might be asking a lot out of him, but I, I do think that it is... If he is your number nine hitter for 162 games, you feel actually probably pretty okay um, about that. As far as other options for the Blue Jays, they the Oakland A's are looking at potentially tearing everything down. If they could go and get a Matt Chapman, that would be a lot of fun. I I like he he is. Definitely one of those like three true outcome sort of folks. Uh, Thirty-two and a half percent strikeout rate, walks twelve point nine percent of the time, which is good, and hits the bejesus out of the baseball with twenty-seven home runs last year, and then in the last full season in twenty nineteen, thirty-six home runs, one hundred and two runs batted in. He is an absolute tank over at third base. I I would be intrigued by trying to make that move and seeing if you could pry him away from the Oakland Athletics. But some big things are definitely happening for the uh, for, for baseball. I thought we'd have to wait for a while for all of that to happen. The other team that has been making a lot of noise so far has been the New York Mets, as they have added everybody over the last little bit. Um, most notably, they signed Max Scherzer to a contract that's worth about $46 million a season. They also bring in Mark Canna, Eduardo Escobar, and Starling Marte. Um, they, they've uh, some smaller acquisitions as well, but you look at this lineup going into next year, like this is a team that clearly is frustrated that they fell off last year and they are just going to spend. And they are clearly pissed that Noah Syndergaard, um, left them the, the way that 
they did. And there was another signing that they were really upset about too. But they, they, they have been kind of going all in for the last couple of years. I think this is a wild overpay for Max Scherzer. You look at, and we are just at the start of the offseason, obviously. But you look at DeGrom, Scherzer, Tywin Walker, Carlos Carrasco as your one, two, three, four, and then a, a battle for the... Um, a battle for that number five spot or go out and sign someone else. Like, DeGrom, good when healthy. How often is he healthy? Uh, 92 innings pitched in 2021. Max Scherzer, excellent. 37 years old, though. That is a lot of money. You have banked in zero potential regression for him. Uh, Taiwan Walker, when he is on, one of the best pitchers in baseball. ERA almost at four and a half last season. Carlos Carrasco, at a point, was one of the best pitchers in baseball, and has it, it is amazing what he has been able to do to get back, but now to rely on him is a little bit concerning. This is still a Mets pitching staff that I think is under construction. I think the bullpen, again, has the potential to be good. Edwin Diaz in the, the back end of that. You got Seth Lugo there as well, but th- this is a team that I think needs a couple of more additions, but like they, they are spending a whole lot of money and this still doesn't look like a team that's a lock for any sort of playoffs. One team that I'm surprised at how quiet they have been is the New York Yankees. And there is a lot of frustration from Yankees Twitter about this. But that this was a Yankee team that needed starting pitching. And it kind of feels like the starting pitching market has just blown past them now, right? Like, Syndergaard's not going to the Yankees. Gosman's off the board. Robbie Ray is off the board. Um... Could Marcus Stroman just go from Queens to the Bronx and pitch for the Yankees? I think that would make some sense for them. Like, they just, they need to upgrade at pitching, and it feels like the free agent market is just blowing right past them now. It is surprising how quiet the Yankees have been. I still I still think they make a splash for one of the young shortstops that are out there, but I thought this would be a very busy, very aggressive offseason for the Yankees. And right now, in the American League East, the Blue Jays are the big spenders, and they've lost two of their guys. But bringing in Gosman, Boston, um, they signed Waka, I believe, and the the Tampa Bay Raves have brought in a couple of guys who are probably going to have ERAs under two this year because that's just how they do. But I, I have been surprised at what the Yankees haven't done so far this offseason. In the National Hockey League, big change is coming to Montreal as Mark Bergevin is out. And I think this is a mistake. I get this team is underproducing. This season, they are second last in the Atlantic Division at 6-15-2. They find themselves miles out of a playoff spot already. We are now just past uh, American Thanksgiving. And Montreal is currently, as I try to find, 10 points out of a playoff spot. Their goal differential is minus 29. That is the worst in the Eastern Conference and um, the second worst in the NHL, topped only by the Arizona Coyotes, who are actively trying to suck this season and doing a hell of a job of it. So yes, it has been gross in Montreal this season. I get that. This team just made it to the cup final a few months ago, and now we're blowing it up. And I get like it was it was not a good finish to the regular season and they got hot at playoff time. But this is kind of a team that was built for the playoffs. And then this year, Weber is out for the season. Carey Price hasn't played yet, has been dealing with his stuff, which we, we have no problem with. But when you're looking at assessing this Montreal roster, having two of the key pieces just absolute zeros for you and then firing the general manager because of it. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I think this is a panic move, and I think I it's it's extremely short-sighted 
for Montreal. I wouldn't be surprised if Bergevin ends up in Vancouver, which speaking of teams that are pa making panic moves and extremely short-sighted, the Vancouver Canucks will not be accused of that. They are doing all of the due diligence, apparently, before they fire Jim Benning. Um, the, the Canucks, as we speak, have lost four in a row. They are 6-14-2 on the season. They are at 14 points, which puts them nine points out of a playoff spot. They are 11 out of the top three in the Pacific Division as we speak. It's a disaster there. And people looking to run the coach out of town as well. I don't think this is the coach's fault at all. I think this is one of the more flawed rosters in the league. And the fact that they have been able to flirt with playoff positioning at times and have been able to get what they have been able to get out of this team is nothing short of a miracle. I get the losing is wearing on some of the players there. Like there, there's apparently a couple of different camps and there's some divides in the locker room. I still think Travis Green is a very good coach. And I think... If he gets let go from Vancouver, that would be one that the Canucks end up regretting. But it is real bad in Vancouver right now. Let's close with some boxing. Over the weekend, Teofimo Lopez. We said for the last couple of months that Teofimo Lopez's camp could not have handled this situation um, any worse. And this fight with George Gumbosis was just an absolute disaster because of how long it took. In the end, nine different dates, five different locations, and Teofimo Lopez loses. He is upset as a 13-1 favorite. He loses a uh, split decision. The scorecards, 115-111 and 115-112 for the Aussie, Cambosis, while 114-113 uh, is the scorecard for Teofimo Lopez. There are a couple of layers to this fight. One, Teofimo Lopez clearly just wanted, like I said going in, Go in there, get this guy out early, and just move on. And he was fighting as if he wanted to fight again in February because he was looking to just unload on Combosis and just, like, get him out of there early. And then he gets dropped in round one, and it ends up being a fight. I thought he dropped uh, Combosis late in the first round. No one else saw it that way, so apparently it was a, just a trip or something. But it turned into one of the fights of the year. And now you have a new star born at 135 pounds with Cambosis uh, getting the uh, getting the victory. I feel like I'm saying his name wrong and I apologize greatly for that. But Cambosis comes up with the the performance of a lifetime. Couple of notes from this one. Let's start with the, actually in the fight. Teofimo Lopez obviously had no respect for Combosis and just thought he could knock him out. And that's what he was looking for the entire fight. And he gave the entire middle portion of this fight away to Cambosis because he's just loading up, looking at one shot at a time. And then you look at the the the, the stats, and Cambosis is landing more power punches and just more punches in general. So the advantage that Lopez would have had was, well, he's landing the bigger punches. Well, no, he's actually getting outlanded by about 30 when it comes to power punches, and Cambosis is also setting those up. So there's more volume on one side and there's more power on one side. I don't really know what Lopez is thinking when he says, oh, I won that fight 10 rounds to two. It's like, well, you got dropped in one of those rounds. So which of the other several that you gave away in the middle did you think you were actually doing well in? For Cambosis, it was a phenomenal strategy. It, he certainly had faith in his chin that he could handle the barrage from Teofimo Lopez. And he just walked through a bunch of them. And then he was the pressure fighter. He was the one setting up his punches really, really well. That jab was a weapon all fight. And then he was following it up. Whereas Lopez was just loading up one big punch and it ends up working with a swarm in the 10th round. Cambosis 
establishing that jab, working very well off of it, and just filling that space greatly with a lot of violence. It was a it, it was it was a beautiful performance, I thought, from Kambosis. We get to the tenth round, Lopez gets the knockdown, and it feels like he is back. And again, he's just loading up on the one punch. If he would have swarmed and put together some of those Canelo-esque two, three, four, five punch combinations, that referee is calling it. He is waving this fight off and it is over. But he let Kambosis regain his composure and then he just gives the 11th round away. It was a baffling performance and the only more baffling performance was in the corner of Teofimo Lopez where his father was telling him, yeah, you're doing great. Get this guy out of here. What are you doing? Why, why haven't you knocked him out yet? The absolute worst cornering that you could have in that situation. Just terrible, terrible, terrible advice given to Teofimo Lopez. This whole year has been a disaster for him. And now instead, coming off of one of the biggest wins any boxer has had beating the number one pound-for-pound fighter on ESPN. Millions watching that fight. And you waste it with an awful year. Not, not entirely all his fault. But from the purse bid where Triller ends up winning it, that probably should have been the red flag. They default on it. It goes to zone, And now you have lost. All that momentum is gone. And he's not gonna be able to fight again for a while. Like the, the, these, he may not, I mean, this is being a little bit glib. Neither of these guys may be the same after this. They both got the hell beat out of each other in this one. Lopez, I would imagine he comes back by the summer. So now we have wasted a year and a half trying to get this guy back on track. I would imagine he moves up and some of those dream fights that we had around this weight class, a rematch with Lomachenko, that one goes away. And now Kambosis is talking about, oh, I, I think a fight with Haney. I think a fight with Davis. I think a fight with Lomachenko are all on the table. And no shit he's thinking that. He wants to cash out on this as much as he can. There's still some flaws in his game for sure. Once Lopez was actually boxing, um, he had some problems with it. But if you're just going to load up and try to one hit or quitter this guy and call it a night, that clearly is not going to happen. Once again, before we put a bow on this show, I just want to thank you all so much for your support of Movember. Uh, we hit our fundraising goal of $500. I was a little concerned about that. Obviously, I don't have the platform that I had before. And for everyone to kind of stick with me, the, the Twitch stream, again, we get helped out by the raid late, but still, uh, the numbers even before that were quite good. And so for everyone who supported that, thank you guys all so very much for doing that. And thank you for tuning in today. That is the show. Again, if you have any thoughts on this, you can find me on social media. I am at PrimetimeKlein on Twitter and Instagram, twitch.tv slash PrimetimePK. You can email the show, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. The music is provided by Wasted Talent. Find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. And you can find their producer on Instagram at TommyFreshTalent music if you want more from me we had no idea our general history podcast comes out every wednesday morning you can find that show on instagram at we had no idea podcast two more shows for me coming out this week talk to you guys later i'm out